My name is Dario Hasenstab, IO degree in International Affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand hero worshipping through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about how this podcast started, the concept we use, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, good to be with you again. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why is this relevant to us? Uh, hi, Dario. Hi, everyone. Uh, good to be here. Um, we're speaking about this topic essentially because it's a very common way in which humanity tends to create bubbles, not just the Western bubble, but throughout time, by taking certain figures and elevating them to a level of ideological purity or moral purity and therefore reinforcing our own perspectives on ourselves. It's, it's a very common thread throughout human history and it's very visible in today's Western bubble as well. As always, before we move on to this topic, um, let's cover... What is the question of the week? So this week's question of the week reads as follows. How do you both consider Japan's pivot to offensive militarism? Walter, what are our thoughts here? Well, what it clearly uh, is, is a change in narrative about the 21st century compared to the 20th century. Japan and Germany, both because of the re obvious reasons related to Second World War, have consistently been skeptical about their use of military as part of foreign policy. Um, in the case of Japan, it's been part of its constitution. In the case of Germany, um, it's been very much a cultural, sociological, psychological aspect of German society, as we discussed in a previous episode. Uh, this idea of not using the military for to achieve your global objectives. And that in itself, despite the dark origins of those approaches by Japan and Germany surely have been admirable in many ways. Um, and I would have hoped that countries such as the United Kingdom and France, and maybe even at some point the United States, would look at Japan and Germany and say, hang on, we can be very successful. We can also achieve our global goals, our foreign policy goals, without relying so much on military intervention, because military intervention is destructive. It leads to all kinds of problems. That was my hope. Unfortunately, now, with uh, Japan's pivot, as the, the question phrases it, but also Germany's approach to Ukraine, rather than the rest of the world becoming more like Japan and Germany, Japan and Germany are reverting back to the default position that these countries throughout human history have taken in general. Namely, there are situations in which our military can be useful, we're going to expand our military capabilities, and we're going to become just like everyone else, which to me is a very sad dynamic to observe. It is a very sad dynamic to observe. And uh, I mean, I do understand Japan's position a little bit better than, for example, the one of Germany, simply because Japan is is surrounded by countries that it doesn't have the most friendliest relation with. So I'm thinking about North Korea, I'm also thinking about China. And also about Russia. Um, there's, you know, the, the islands in the north of Japan that both Russia and Japan claim. So I do, I do understand, understand their position a bit more that this is simply a statement, maybe also of proactive defense. 
when it comes to Germany, I think it's it's absolutely tragic because we're not in the same situation. Uh, Germany is surrounded by European nations and except Austria, all of them are part of NATO. So I don't really get that. Um, the only difference I see here is that for Germany, we have a parliamentarian army, meaning our the, our military can only be deployed once the parliament agrees to it. We don't have a commander in chief uh, as the United States. And I, I imagine it's similar in Japan. That, of course, makes a lot of uh, sense. But there is there is a bit of a false dichotomy um, often in this debate, as if it is a choice for Germany and Japan between having no military at all or just using the military like everyone else. The Japanese defense forces are some of the strongest in the world, world and they have been for the past 50 years. There is no doubt that Germany has a very strong military, even though Germans like to mock them and um, like to pretend that they're just two guys without any uh, bullets in their guns. Uh, Germany has a very serious military, spends dozens of billions, in fact, roughly 50 billion a year on its military capabilities. It's not as if the choice is either no military and we're going to be overrun by Russia or we're going to be overrun by North Korea or having a military in the way that France and the United Kingdom have them. There is a middle ground saying our military is simply here to pr protect our in territorial integrity, which is exactly why Japan has had its defense force. We are not seeing our military as a way to aggressively engage with the rest of the world. It is just there to protect our Westphalian sovereignty. And... That seems to be a very reasonable approach that I wish more countries followed. Unfortunately, now the dynamic is in the other direction. This is true, by the way, um, despite you formulating it as a, as a joke. Uh, there is more than two guys without any bullets in their guns. But there, this happened just a few months ago where there was this outcry that they counted all the ammunition that there is in Germany. And he concluded that Germany, in case of an, like an attack, only had ammunition for two days. Um, I assume that's not enough, uh, but I'm not, not a military expert. Um, then let's move on to the, to the actual topic um, of, of this week, to hero worshipping. And what are the facts? Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, commonly known as Mahatma Gandhi, was an Indian revolutionary, anti-colonial nationalist and political ethicist who employed non-violent resistance to lead a successful campaign for India's independence from British rule and later inspired movements for civil rights and freedom across the world. He lived from 1869 to 1948 and never received the Nobel Peace Prize, although he was nominated five times. Decades later, the Nobel Committee publicly declared its regret for the omission and admitted to deeply divided nationalistic opinion denying the award. Mary Teresa Boyachu, better known as Mother Teresa, was an Albanian Indian Catholic nun who founded the Missionaries of Charity in 1950. The congregation manages homes for people who are dying of HIV, leprosy and tuberculosis. It also runs soup kitchens, mobile clinics, children's and family counseling programs, as well as orphanages and schools. In 1979, Mother Teresa received the Nobel Peace Prize for work undertaken in the struggle to overcome poverty and distress, and received further awards like the Pope John Peace Prize and the Ramon Magsaysay Award for Peace. Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, commonly known as Winston Churchill, was a British statesman, soldier and writer who served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom twice, from 1940 to 1945 during the Second World War, 
and again from 1951 to 1955. Widely considered one of the 20th century most significant figures, Churchill remains popular in the Anglosphere, where he's seen as a victorious wartime leader who played an important role in defending Europe's liberal democracy against the spread of fascism. What is the bubble? Starting with this, then, Balder, why do we love glorifying historical figures so much? What is it within us humans that makes us want to glorify, you know, a person from the past that we feel very strongly about? Well, there's almost not, nothing better to glorify, right? We, it, we find it harder, even though sometimes we do um, glorify people who are still alive or in our surroundings. That does happen, but that's more complicated because you're more connected to the whole reality and the whole complexity of the human being because every human being has dark sides and 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 positive good sides and it is um, harder to navigate that when someone is still alive and sometimes says things you don't like whereas a historical figure is typically someone that you can simplify into the extreme right you can actually so you turn that person into everything you want to believe in and be make that person a symbol rather than a complex human being, uh, a symbol in favor of your agenda and often in favor of yourself by saying, uh, oh, you know what, I really identify with Mother Teresa and then Mother Teresa at that moment becomes this symbol of hardworking purity to help the poor and all that. You're basically appropriating some of that symbolism onto yourself and signaling to the rest of the world i'm a little bit like mother Teresa, so it's like a, a two-step process where first we simplify that historical figure into absurd levels of purity and then secondly we try to incorporate some of that back into ourselves and and and, and turn ourselves into something we'd like to be and this process is nothing that is unique to the west right I mean, this is Not something that is very common throughout humanity. Yeah, absolutely. As long as human civilization exists. And even you could probably argue, even now I'm talking about something that I have no expertise about, but even before organized civilization, um, worshipping our ancestors in many ways is the same thing, right? As long as you have a relatively positive perspective on your ancestors on your grandfather or your great-grandfather um, people that maybe you didn't know very well at a personal level you project onto them everything that is noble everything that was just everything that was great and you don't actually have to go in a time machine and look at all their dodgy behavior that they engaged in when they were actually alive you can just imagine that everything about them was good so even before civilization humanity probably had a certain tendency to do this but ever since we know anything about um, how people organize themselves there has been this singling out of specific individuals either real or mythological that then become a item to worship and to um, appropriate for our own moral superiority and you know the historical period that comes to mind is obviously the greek mythology Know, individuals like Achilles that you know we made movies about that there's so many uh, just tales about and I mean it, it, it does make sense and this kind of leads into the next point because this happens a lot you know in in also our everyday language is oh I don't pretend to be Mother Teresa where you where you say oh of course I, I'm you know I'm not a perfect person who's doing everything uh, for other people 
Or the other example um, of the people we're going to talk about is, is Churchill. Oh, you know, he's a Churchillian leader. And let's unpack this uh, because I do, I do want to dive first into why do we think these individuals are so great? Starting with, with Churchill, um, you lived in the United Kingdom, so you, you, you understand the mindset better. What is it with Churchill and the Brits? <laughs> well, it is not difficult to understand why Churchill has this special place in British mythology, because part of it was based on reality. And I think we need to be very clear about this throughout the episode, that it is not our our objective in this episode to take down into a certain darkness people like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Churchill. It's just to acknowledge that they are they were complex individuals that didn't have that purity that we would like to project onto them. And Churchill absolutely represents a very important moment in British history when Britain was under serious threat by Nazi Germany, by the Second World War, and Churchill played a consistently productive role in fighting that threat. He was, in that sense, the right leader at the right time for the UK. And not just as a prime minister did he become the symbol of resistance against Hitler, but he had been consistent in his attitudes against Hitler way before the war started, in the early 30s, when the British establishment was very much focused on communism and thought, well, this Hitler guy, at least he's a good buffer against communist expansion, against communist revolution. Churchill was already warning about the dangers of Hitler. So Churchill was consistently, in that sense, on the right side of history when it comes to Britain's uh, perspective on itself and and uh, its place in the world. And with Mother Teresa, we do the same, where, you know, you have this woman who founded you know a mission and it sounds like you know because i mean this is how i grew up as well i can still remember this my, my mother in particular she would quote mother Teresa a lot saying oh no you should be more like her you should strive to be more like her be selfless don't do things you know for like with out of your own self-interest and that um did compare to uh, some of the things you taught me in class when I took your uh, development class at university, because that's something that the Western aid sector does as well, right? One of the main problems of the aid sector indeed is that they often hold themselves up to a certain ideal. They believe themselves to be selfless benefactors making the world a better place, whereas in reality there are loads of different interest at stake. People in the aid sector work there because of career reasons, because uh, they want to earn money, because most of them are professionals, uh, or because it allows them certain experiences that they can use later in life. And yes, there's also an aspect of, hey, actually what I'm doing also maybe has a positive impact on my surroundings, which is great, of course. But what very much happens is this Mother Teresa attitude of, we are here helping others, we are selfless, and others need to be grateful for our presence. And that becomes a very dangerous dynamic, very much in line with how we have given Mother Teresa a free pass on a lot of her behavior, where because we portrayed this image of someone just doing good, we didn't acknowledge the darker side of that kind of behavior. 
And similar processes happen with uh, the third person, the third case study we want to talk about, uh, namely Gandhi. But this is a bit more complex for us, especially from a Western bubble perspective, because first of all, he's a non-Westerner and because he's someone who very much stood up against the West in many ways. Yes, so Gandhi is not in itself someone like Churchill, who clearly is the symbol of Western Anglo-Saxon, if you like, superiority, right? Strong uh, fight of liberal democracy versus Nazi, uh, Nazi ideology, and not like Mother Teresa as an exponent of the Catholic Church of Christianity. Uh, we bring a, 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 not just a lifestyle, but also a religion to the uncivilized masses of the world, if you want to put it in that kind of narrative. Gandhi um, was certainly not an exponent of any type of Western bubble, but what the West has done, and even in during his lifetime, during um, the I Indian independence movement, has sort of co-opted him, right? In the beginning, in the 1920s, 1930s, he was a pain in the backside for the British Empire. But at some point, certainly after the Second World War, that switched. And he became, first of all, a quite a useful tool for Britain. And then afterwards, a symbol for, oh, we are now more enlightened. We understand that not everything was great. And we learned something from such a wise Indian man who, who tells us to be peaceful and to be um, magnanimous to, to our surroundings. So then again even though we cannot claim Gandhi as being Western, by acknowledging our own faults and projecting them onto Gandhi, we still co-opt the whole narrative of hero-worshipping of this person. Uh, this already moves a lot into the next category, so I would say we simply move on. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And when talking about the damage, um, let's, let's simply continue with Gandhi. Because you have this Western, let's call it whitewashing um, of its of its past, and uh, but what are the other damages of this? I mean, obviously, you know, Western behavior is being justified by this, but what were some of the other things that we we maybe should see more realistically about Gandhi? Well, the, the first thing to say, and this could be, this is consistently true for any figure in history, because that's simply how human beings are, is that. If you actually delve into the details of Gandhi's life, the same for other, if Martin Luther King or whoever else you want to take into this conversation, um, you can see moral complexity and moral darkness. Um, this, that in itself doesn't take away the value of those people. It, it doesn't take away uh, the things that we can admire about those people. It just recognizes that these people were actually complex human beings, right? And so if you were to delve into Gandhi's life, you see you can make quite a long list of things that we would probably actually feel uncomfortable with. Now, that's okay. They don't. It's okay not to demand a purity test from figures that inspire us, but let's not pretend that they were holier than than any of us, right? That they were somehow capable of expelling all their internal negativity and all, the, all their moral complexity. I think this is important to to remember that all three of them are still human. Um, and that, I mean, you, you call it complex human nature. I, I would almost just say, oh, I mean, normal human nature, that there's, you know, there, there's some dodgy sides about all of us. Um, however, let's let's get a bit more concrete here. So, what are some of the problems with Gandhi? 
Once the movement was on its way and it was completely obvious that India had to become uh, independent because the British Empire was just falling apart, didn't have any of the powers to maintain its previous structures, the question was not, is India going to become independent? The question was how. And originally the plans had been for one India, greater India, including what would be modern-day Pakistan and Bangladesh, to actually split apart as a single country. Then Gandhi and London, under certain pressures also from uh, Muslim leaders, um, actually started negotiating that and, and started questioning whether the, the India that was in initially envisioned was going to be um, a feasible outcome of this decolonization process. And very quickly that turned into, no, we will accept a Muslim India and the Hindu is that we will accept the breakup of this country, which was useful for London because it allowed them to sort of split up their previous colonies into smaller chunks that are typically easier to control from a neo-colonial perspective. And it was a dynamic that Gandhi participated in and facilitated. We know that since then, Pakistan and uh, for those people who don't know, initially Pakistan contained both modern-day Pakistan and Bangladesh before Bangladesh split off from Pakistan, leading up to three different countries, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Uh, we know that Pakistan and India, ever since that moment, are in this very complex, difficult relationship with wars and, and border violence and, and diplomatic tensions continuously being a reality that they're facing, including potential nuclear war. This was something that Britain never really had to take responsibility for because they could hide behind leaders such as Gandhi. And let's take this also into the into the more modern days. Um, so after you know independence and everything, how did the West continue to treat Gandhi and continue to use Gandhi as a as a brand almost? They they started incorporating his presence into their own neo-colonial processes, um, inviting him to events, as you already stated in the fact sheet, um, uh, nominating him for the Nobel Peace Prize, even though he didn't win, and essentially adopting him as part of this narrative of the West is learning and the West has been told by wise leaders such as Gandhi how to behave in a better way. Thereby, on the one hand, completely ignoring their continued neo-colonial attitude towards India and the rest of the world, um, under the guise of we're hiding behind, you know, on, while, while hiding behind Gandhi, whereas at the same time, completely and utterly ignoring issues such as Gandhi actually being a Hindu nationalist. Um, Gandhi actually... Uh, saying some horrible things about how the world should have dealt with Adolf Hitler. Um, let Adolf Hitler take over your territory and all that. All that was taken out of the equation, out of the historical records. And Gandhi was put on this pedestal of, he has shown us the light and now we are just like him because we have learned from him. And during those times, you also have the uh, person of uh, Winston Churchill. And here... I understand why why the why the British um, really like him as a as a wartime leader. However, as a leader not during war, it seems like he failed and had a difficult moral compass, to say the least. He came from a very specific background. I mean, he's uh, he was a direct and um, 
he was a direct descendant of the Duke of Marlborough. He was, he was born in Blenheim Palace. I encourage people to Google that and you'll see that this is a real palace. This is not just a large mansion. This is, he came from a very specific circle and he was incredibly colonial as much more so than maybe his time frame demanded of him, right? He was a deep believer in the British Empire, in this narrative of the West being somehow superior and having to bring civilization to the uneducated masses around the world. And as a result, a lot of his career before becoming prime minister, before the 1930s and 1940s, was dedicated to expanding that British bubble if you like that western bubble that doesn't take away his positive role in positioning the uk during the second world war but we can also not deny that and we cannot use the word churchillian to then only point at that one little bit of his personality that allowed him to be a good leader in 1943 we also need to acknowledge that darker side where he was a cock in a very destructive colonial system yet that is something that's again being deleted from the history books and we are perfectly right with someone saying oh my hero is winston churchill i i aspire to be like winston churchill which is of course essentially saying i aspire to be like someone who made the world a pretty bad place before he actually did something good see the the moment i was first confronted with churchill's also darker past uh was was during university when in high school you know we heard about churchill okay he was part of the english um he played a role in world war ii uh, however, it was only my my friends from India during my university times who then pointed out, for an example, the Bengal famine, where he played a very significant role in underestimating it at first, um, and then ultimately leading to to the death of three million people who were starved to death uh, simply because of the you know shortcomings of the of of the British rule in India, and and that you know those those details are very conveniently being swept under the rug. And I mean, again, in having these conversations with friends from India, they have a very, very strong opinion about him, but not as a Churchillian wartime leader, but more as a terrible, terrible person. And this, by the way, is a good example of generally the damage of the Western bubble and why we're so obsessed with this in the podcast, because then you have a prime minister like Boris Johnson, who not only wrote a biography on Churchill, has over and over again stated that Churchill is his hero and inspiration, and that prime minister then goes to India <laughs> and is surprised that the Indians are not particularly impressed and doesn't understand what, what is wrong with you. Why can't I say that Churchill is my great source of inspiration? Um, right. So it is a very good example of how once we create that bubble, we're really bad at connecting to the real world out there, to the realities that surround us. And somewhere else where we had difficulties connected to the real world out there is... When we're looking at Mother Teresa, and yes, she founded you know this mission that helped many people, but when it came to curing people, she said that oh you know suffering is a gift from God. So you have these very questionable tactics about you know sick people, and you could help them with modern medicine, but that's not part of your understanding of how the world works. And that understanding of how the world works was also a very important part of how and why she helped people because. A mission ultimately wants to convert people to Christianity. Mother Teresa was a fundamentalist Christian, 
and as everything fundamentalist, one has to be very careful to then connect with the rest of the world. You can have your own fundamentalist views, but the moment you impose them on others, it becomes a problem. And she not only imposed them in conversation, but she actually went to a world that had very little interest in Christianity. And she said, my fundamentalism is going to now be part of your dying process. I'm going to help you as a poor person to die with a certain level of dignity, but I'm going to decide what that dignity means. And if possible, I'm going to convert you before you die so that you can be saved by Jesus Christ. Even if you are a Christian yourself and you believe that people who are saved will benefit from that in the afterlife, you will even then surely acknowledge that there is a problematic nature to that, that there is something very dark about imposing that kind of fundamentalist perspective on other people, especially in the hour, in their hour of need, in their hour of weakness, at a moment that they do not have the chance to really make an informed decision about where they want to go with their soul or with their spirituality or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it is essentially preying on the fragility of dying people in order to achieve your own fundamentalist aims. That is something that surely requires a certain level of cynicism now in 2023. And still now you hear people saying, oh, I'm no Mother Teresa. And this leads me to the next person we want to talk about. These are simply some honorable mentions um, about you know, individuals where it's difficult glorifying them. Because, we, I mean, we now say, thanks, Obama you know, sarcastically about things that are, that are not going well, it might not be his mistake. However, you have a very personal Mother Teresa story with Obama as well, right? Yes, I, uh, this was obviously 2008. I was watching the presidential elections and for about a year, year and a half, we had been building up as a world, and certainly as a Western world, towards this moment of finally finishing the dark George W. Bush years, right? George W. Bush had become the object of mockery, but also of real, real frustration because of the tremendous destruction that the war on terror had inflicted upon the world. We were all looking forward to a new era. And here came this young, incredibly intelligent, incredibly intellectual and charismatic leader Barack Obama first term senator wonderful uh, speaker and crucially uh, African American all our hopes and dreams were projected onto that there couldn't be a greater contrast and uh, between the scion the political scion George W. Bush who had messed up the world for the past eight years and the new wind that was going to blow because of this amazing second coming of Christ called Barack Obama. Um, and yet, reality turned out to be different, as we know now. But on the night or the morning of the elections in 2008, I was looking at the screen. I saw Barack Obama. He was, he it had been confirmed that he'd won the elections. I saw him up there with his family, with Michelle Obama and their two children, celebrating the the presidency i had tears in my eyes and i wrote an incredibly glorifying enthusiastic passionate article for my then employer on their website saying this is such an amazing moment and this is this is going to change history i was literally with tears in my eyes thinking finally the world is going to be a better place 
that was a moment where I completely fell into this trap of glorifying someone that obviously should not have been glorified in the first place, because no one should be glorified, but also misinterpreting the realities of this person that I was looking at on the screen, right? The symbolism symbolism of being African-American, of not being George W. Bush, of being intelligent, of being intellectual, all of that blinded me and so many others around me into making him a bigger than life personality. And the next eight years, as a result, were a tremendous disappointment, obviously. I mean, it was not only you and others around you, it was also the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, right? I mean, after he was in power for less than eight months and he hadn't done anything, uh, they already awarded him the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009. I think that's a perfect example of, you know, what what are the downsides of glorying someone, especially too early? At, 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 at one level, that's, co- of course, complete insanity that, that he got the Nobel Peace Prize without actually having done anything yet. But it also shows something about the sense that this was the beginning of a new era. It was his symbolism that got the Nobel Peace Prize, not his actual actions, but the symbolism of going away from this destructive war on terror mentality into a more positive, productive, intelligent future. So in many ways, that was a Nobel Peace Prize that was there for the winds of change rather than that actual person. But yeah, of course, it's complete insanity. And another person that... I mean, obviously, you know, in the lead up to this episode, we researched some figures that are being glorified in our society. Uh, we looked at Nelson Mandela. However, for him, it's more difficult to do these things because, I mean, yes, he's glorified. And I think for, for very good reasons, I think he's also seen a bit more realistically than the others. But there aren't so many dark things from his past that you could point to and say, oh, these are very these are terrible actions. No, and those those dark things that you do see would be then related to your own individual political ideology in the sense that you some people criticize him for being a communist terrorist, if you like, during the year before he was imprisoned by the apartheid regime. Now, I think it says more about the way that we use the word terrorism uh, and the problem that we have with labels such as communism or socialism or left-wing versus right-wing than actually the character of Mandela, because... Mandela consistently in prison and afterwards has shown to be um, has been shown to be the leader that South Africa needed and and has been an example for many people and it's actually quite hard to find darker sides to to who he was now for me one of the most impressive moments of Mandela's presidency was not actually when he rose to power but how he sat it's now enough. I'm I'm not standing in the next elections. It's up to the next generation. That is a sign of someone who really seriously knows what the responsibilities of leadership are. Also know when to stand down and not being hungry with power. So Mandela would be a person that is actually quite hard to criticize. But obviously, uh, he was also a simple human being like all of us. And we have to be very careful in taking him into godlike in uh, turning him into a godlike status and what now and when we're talking about what now and what is the future in general how much sense does it make to take down or praise historical figures because i mean this is obviously a debate currently i think there are not that many people out there who are trying to take down people we glorify but there's a lot of people who are trying to take down figures from the past this would go into the category of 
not thinking in terms of black and white. Uh, it is about symbolizing good decisions that people take and people take good decisions all the time and some decisions are more admirable than others for someone like uh, Churchill to be consistent in his criticism of Hitler in the 1930s and then become a symbol of resistance against Nazi oppression in the United Kingdom can be celebrated there's nothing wrong with celebrating that but that is not the same as turning him into some kind of pure character that we should always aspire to be. Let's look at what the actions are of that person that we appreciate, that we respect, and that we want to remember, rather than turning him into something that he never was. And that same thing could be said for everything, and also on the other side that you mentioned. The problem very often with those discussions of taking down statues is that we no longer think of them as complex human beings that also did good things and that were also loving parents to their children. We just remember that those one or two actions that, that were destructive, that were dark. And that, of course, is completely misrepresenting history and society. Most people in, uh, before, the, before the 20th century were racist, sexist, whatever. Does that mean that we dismiss all of them? No, of course not. They can still have done certain good things despite taking certain actions that we reject in the 21st century. And so it goes both ways. Uh, let's look at the actions. Let's celebrate the actions and the choices that we appreciate. Let's turn them into some kind of symbol of who we want to be rather than the complex person behind it. It's, it is about, well, can you impose today's morality on the past? And I gave this example uh, during our episode on historical awareness where I said, I am pretty sure that my children or grandchildren are going to judge me for eating meat. That at some point, you know, in the next 50 years, technology will have developed so far that the healthier and environmentally better alternative, uh, artificial alternative to meat um, is so prevalent in society that my children are going to look at me saying, you ate meat? Are you sure about that? You killed an animal and you destroyed the planet? And it's, again, I mean, it's morally... Uh, Not, not very difficult now, but who knows what the situation is going to look like in 50 years. And I think to conclude this, I think we can say that we shouldn't be hero worshipping uh, today, but also not giving them less credit than they actually deserve. That's absolutely true, especially in those situations where uh, people contributed very significantly to our current well-being, for example, scientists. And then all of a sudden pretend that all we care about is that they were also um, anti-feminist or that they were also um, racist in their approach to Arabs or in their approach towards um, people with different skin colors. Let's celebrate the good things from humanity and uh, also educate ourselves about the dark steps of humanity without wanting to symbolize evil and good in simplistic binary ways this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on hero worshiping if you have any questions comments or regards make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today make sure to join us again next week when we burst the western bubble That is it from my side. Alder, which closing quote did you pick for us today?
I took a quote from the late Christopher Hitchens, who wrote, by the way, on Gandhi and Mother Teresa quite extensively and was a clear critic of uh, the sort of hero worshipping that we've discussed in this episode. And he said, It is pardonable for children to yell that they believe in fairies, but it is somehow sinister when the piping note shifts from the puerile to the senile. 